Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Innalhamdulillahi wa kafa. Wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulil mustafa. Wa ala ibadi alladhin artaba. Wa man bihudahum ihtada. Wa bi athari ahlil madinat abtafa. Wa ba'ad. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Marhaban people. Alright, so. Let's, inshallah, begin this live. All the questions you've got boiled and bottled. Shaban, any of the questions coming on the, if you just keep a tab on it, because I won't be able to see them from here. Guys, you can send in your questions, but they're being monitored. Cool, so, all right, let's. What's bothering the, the Birmingham folk, the pleasant folk of Birmingham, so. Okay, I mean, my, you see, these arguments are old arguments, the cosmological, I haven't read his book, but just generally, the cosmological argument, the ontological argument, the teleological argument, these arguments for saying, can we prove God exists? So, whether you're going to go to, these are all Aristotelian, all kind of by the Greek philosophers, more or less, and then Muslims have refined some of them. So whether you, we're going to say that things like things have a purpose, so we see purpose in the world and therefore we see design. And if we see design, uh, surely there must have been an intelligent designer. So that's the teleological argument, the cosmological with the prime mover and the first, like if everything is in motion, there must have been something that was not in motion that put it in motion. Otherwise, you have infinite regress. Now, the ontological argument about the, you know, the essence, the fact that you can feel and understand, fathom a, a something which is God, which we can't generally fathom. So the fact that we can do this means there must be some kind of God out there. These arguments are all good, um, but we personally, my understanding is that these are good to give a bit of support, a bit of, um, like to help people who are looking for something. I don't know about saying that these things prove 100%. Like, they're not like, I don't think, it's not like saying the way we accept mathematics or we accept something, that just because you say, um, that there's design in something, there must be an intelligent design. But I feel that the overwhelming likelihood demonstrates that. So it, there's a difference between saying that, you know, we have a lot of support for saying there is a God as opposed to there isn't a God. That's what I would go with personally, as opposed to saying to people that we can prove 100% there is a God. Because in all honesty, you can't prove 100% from these arguments. These are just rational kind of gymnastics. Like we say to people, look, there's a design. And then they can question that as well. I mean, like they have in many cases, they've said, well, you know, they've shown things, for example, which demonstrate design but don't have a... Or they, they've said that it doesn't prove that there's one God. There could have been, a mul there could have been multiple gods. There could have been many gods. There could have been a gang of gods. There could have been anything. Like, so it's not like these arguments... You know, back and forth, they're, f they're fun, they're good. I think they are helpful, they help. And I would definitely encourage them, but not in the way some people push them as in certain, this ilmul yaqeen, now that you know this, there's no denying that there's a God. It doesn't work like that. In my understanding, Allahu But that's, I mean, once again, that's not a comment on uh, Muhammad Hijab's thing, because I haven't read his thing, so. 
I think we I think it's okay to say that we on we have some, you know as human beings we have some doubt. It's okay to say that. I don't think see one of the things is when I said this once before somebody said oh you're supporting agnosticism. I'm not supporting agnosticism in that sense but I'm just saying that it is true that arguably every human being to some extent is just agnostic. Uh, to some extent, I mean, on a spectrum, but then we have our inclination. We're not like, you know, hyperbolic kind of like OCD, you know, agnosticism on steps. Everybody's saying, oh my God, I don't know. Are you sure? I don't know if I'm sure. I don't know if I'm... I don't mean like that kind of agnostic. But ultimately, true, I mean, people like scientists will say that, you know, can you, ult can you say with certainty that something is? And I suppose you can't. There's some things that we just have faith, that, you know, we believe. That's our understanding. The belief of God is not counter-rational. It's not, it's not irrational. It's not counter-reason. You know, it's not an irrational belief. True, we don't have empirical evidence for it, but, you know, it's, it's not counter-reason to say that there's a God that created everything. So, yeah, that's what I would go with. And I think a lot of the people, even when I speak to some atheists, one thing that they kind of agree with is that they feel that, because I've just said, because some people have said to me, some atheists, that look, you know, you, you always give primacy to reason, you always do this, you always do this. How can you really believe? Like, if you're going to be honest, like, why do you believe? Like, why are you still a Muslim? Or why? Because it doesn't sound like from, you know, from, you would think that you could see through all of this. And I've said that, look, in my understanding, that the, the fact that I can understand things, as if, you know, like you can, like, I don't mean like some genius understanding, I just mean normal. The fact that we can fathom things, we can, we have consciousness. Consciousness in that, I don't just mean being awake, but consciousness, like with a capital C. So, in that sense, I feel that there must be some meaning to it. There must be something greater out there. This can't just amount to nothing. That's in my understanding. And to be fair, a lot of them kind of agree with that sentiment. <laughs> Although they don't like to buy into it, that they, but they agree with that sentiment. But it's true that, you know, is this just all nonsense? Is it all just, you know, just randomized uh, cohesion of stuff and then it just withers away and it's nothing? But then what about the experiences, the feelings, the emotions, the, the understanding, the comprehension? Like, that, that must mean something. So, I don't know, that's my... Thoughts on these things. Allah. We'll take one question online with Go on then. You know, there was the question being that about should we go with regional or uh, global moon sighting? What should we go with? You know, there was a time many years back, or several years back for, for myself, where I was a bit passionate about these things. And I've still got some of the things on Facebook where I've said, look, looking at the evidence, we should go with just regional. And that's what the evidence dictates. And to be fair, the evidence does seem to dictate that. The, the classical understanding of the Fuqaha did dictate that you go with your understanding. So Ibn Rushd will write that, look, he says that nobody believes in his time that if you lived in Al-Andalus, you would be going by, which is Spain, that you would be going by Hejaz, <coughs> which is Saudi Arabia, or Khurasan, which is Afghanistan. He said, like, in his time, like, that, that's, 
And he said, like, by agreement, like, nobody thinks, even those who say that we go by global, they don't mean global on that scale. But then one could argue that because in his time, how could the news possibly reach from Khorasan to Hijaz, or from Hijaz to Andalusia? One could argue, but what I'm... And I accept that with time, things have become a global village. Like, we've become that kind of a, a world. But still, I, I feel if, you're, if we're looking at the evidence, it does seem regional. Like, with our prayer times, everything is regional. So in the UK, it would either be calculated, or it would be with any country you could go in. Like, so for example, the UK is aligned with Morocco, with its, with its general timeline. So the time we have here... So now let's say it's 10 to 9, it's 10 to 9 in Morocco as well. So we share a similar horizon there on GMT as well. So that's a good, like you could go with Morocco like certain Muslims do. So that was, I was, I mean this is the ruling. I was quite um, very passionate about it before. Now I kind of feel that that still is the ruling, but I feel that, like what difference does it really make? Like if... People are, you know, if somebody wants to go with, so if somebody wants to go with something being announced, because every, you know, social media has made everything so, we're getting text messages on WhatsApp, somebody's been, yeah, exactly, so, so now, I just feel like, what's the big deal, like, you know, if somebody wants to go with Saudi, if somebody wants to go, really, there was no such opinion as following Saudi. There was just an opinion that you could go global. It wasn't restricted to Saudi Arabia. Indonesia could declare it, and you could go with Indonesia, like according to that ruling. But just the way the culture has developed, that Saudi, when it comes to moon sighting, has become the kind of cultural capital, and everybody looks to them, good or bad, I'm not passing judgment, but the point is that they do it. They have been, I feel, that personally clumsy on certain things, but... ที่เกิดขึ้นก็สมมติจะเกิดขึ้นแต่ก็ยังไม่ได้ความหมายอะไรกับความหมายของเขาเลยแต่ก็ยังไม่ได้ความหมายของเขาเลยแต่ก็
we would contact them if I've seen the moon. They would also be looking out for the moon and they would be trained and they would verify as well, yes, or they would deny. Now, I think that's a bit more systematic, but the other issue is, the other issue is, and this isn't new, this goes back to the time, in fact, it was the ruling of Imam Abu Hanifa, that he had said that if, if the moon, like, unless you're going to say there was very, like, let's say it was a very cloudy night, so it's possible that you just saw the moon. But if it's a clear night, like as in reasonably, yeah. good enough, there must be what he used to call istifada. That means many people, like if, let's say, 10,000 people are looking for the moon, then several people must see it. I'm not saying all, but several. For just two people to say, out of, let's say, two million that we saw the moon, is an issue, because that's, that, that's dubious circumstances. Because if everybody's actively looking for the moon, and then only two Bedouins in a desert somewhere say, yeah, I saw it. <laughs> and then you're like, oh. <laughs> so I think that system is flawed given the... So that's, and this thing of saying that just because you're a Muslim, everything must be always fine. I mean, you could be a Muslim and your eyesight's messed up. You could be a Muslim and you could be motivated with other reasons. You could be just, you could be pranking, you could be doing anything. You could be, you could just have mental health issues. You could be hallucinating. You could be, there could be many things. Just because you're Muslim doesn't mean it's a clean check. That, oh, you do say the shahada, you say the shahada, mashallah. <laughs> you know, you're not one of the companions that has lived on. You're just a regular person. So I, I disagree with this system. That said, and I accept that there was no historical thing as following Saudi. That said, if people want to follow it today, which they are following. So whether I like it or I don't like it, personally, I don't like the fact that Saudi Arabia are a cultural capital for Islam. I personally... I'm uneasy with that, but they are. It's not like, yeah, so they are, you know, whether I like it or don't like it, I'm, you know, I can't do anything about it. So they are the cultural capital for, for many things on Islam, unfortunately, and especially moon sighting. So they're going to make an announcement, and the, much of the world is just going to follow. So if they follow, I mean, I don't really think now, now coming away from that, looking at the Sharia, does the Sharia get all concerned. Imagine we got it wrong. Let's say the Bedouin just visualized it, a mirage. He thought, you know, like they think they saw water, he thought he saw the moon. And he got it wrong. Two Bedouins got it wrong, let's say. Or five or ten, whatever. Saudi Arabia gets it wrong. I don't think it's personally a big deal in the sense of, and people have to explain that now, like I don't think that, you see, the purpose of Islam was these things are there, they're on it. And people are honouring them. They're not, like, even if you're getting them wrong, I don't think the purpose was, like, it's like Allah saying in the Qur'an, look, when you offer sacrifice, you know, the meat of these animals and these things don't reach God. It's only the sentiment that counts. Like, when you're offering a sacrifice, this ain't going to float up to God or anything. So, when you're praying, if you've prayed, and you've, like, you've gone in, you've seen a mihrab, you've thought this is the tibla, you prayed, it was wrong. Doesn't matter, like you still prayed, it was your sentiment, it was not. Um, so I don't, this is why I feel with years that have gone by as well, and age, I suppose, or I don't know, I feel that it's not so much of a big deal. But I still feel the regional thing is the more accurate one, but it's out of our control now. So, I mean, if people do it, they do it.
Must Must have, why do you have to see the moon? Why can't you use calculations? I, I feel you can use calculations because... Isn't the, that better? Yeah, it's I would say definitely. Accurate. And I would say there's no harm in doing both. Like, so if you have a calculation basis, so you say like uh, the moon sighting, let's say, websites or the uh, astronomical data tells us that the moon uh, cannot be seen today. I think if it's a negative, uh, um, you know, declaration of negative sighting, by uh, calculations, then any sighting should be ignored. Like, personally, I think that's a given. That would be, because you cannot clash with mathematics and science. It just doesn't work because two people have said they've seen it and it's impossible. But if there's, let's say, it states that there will be, they can be sighting, like sometimes it states there's a potential, and then somebody cites it, so it can go, it can complement mm -hmm. each other. That's what I, I, I feel that that's good. But even if, if nobody saw it, but it said that it's clear, like it's going to be there today, and you know, there could be clouds and things, so I think there's no harm in going with calculations. The hadith in the Prophet's time, you know, sumu li ru'yatihi, wa aftiru li ru'yatihi, that fast by seeing it, and obviously ru'yatihi, as the Shafi'iyah said then as well, did mean ilm, like by see, its sight, by fast up by its sight, by having seen it, meant by having known as well of it, like having its knowledge. So, I think there's no harm in that personally. Um, we shouldn't be, I think, you know, we've, it's 2019, we've got to move on a bit as well, <laughs> you know, we can't just all be, there's no harm in visual sighting, but there's, we should also embrace technology. I know we argued it's 2019, but it seems to be getting particularly worse, particularly this issue. The moon sighting. The moon sighting. And if the observatory reports are as accurate as they can be, mm -hmm. then surely we should, we should, yeah. we should look to... I agree, definitely. Yeah. Uh, the observatory reports we should definitely go with. Um, but I meant there's no harm in complementing it with an actual sighting. Yeah. There's no harm in that. <coughs> so that's what I meant. Ustadi Yaseen. I think one of the biggest mistakes we can make in our generation, and I think Muslims in the West especially, so I think in this sense we're at the focal point of this. So I think we're at the focal point. The biggest mistake we can make is to put ourselves at heads with science, like to, to, to go up against science. Islam has never been, in, you see, science simply means an observation of the world around you in its very broad definition. That's all it is. It's just an observation of the world around you, whether it's beginning with the human anatomy or whether it's your environment or the laws of that environment and the atmosphere. That's all science actually is in its very broad definition. It's been built upon very testable data, empirical. There's no need to say religion is against that. That is a fight that we are going to not only lose, but miserably lose with great humiliation. And we have a precedent before us of the Catholic Church and of Christianity, and especially Catholicism or the Vatican. We've seen how they lost miserably to this fight against science. I mean, you know, so if we can't, you know, Allah says, that can't you even take heed from things like this? So. Why go against science? I think it's, if, if anything in science, if there's things like this, astronomical data, it's just stupid to go against because these are like mathematical. But if you're, even if science comes up with something, 
if it's a new theory, I'm not saying you have to wholeheartedly just blindly follow, but you can understand what is it saying, and you can see the research on it. Has it been confirmed? Has it been, you know, what's the, the data saying on this? If it's a new theory on something, sure, I mean, people may refute it, people may go, but if it's something that's been established, that time and time again the data has affirmed the theories, then it's stupid to be saying, oh, it's just a theory, oh, it's just this, oh, it's just that. These things make religion look outdated, they make people run away from religion, they make people think, you know, this astro astronomy thing you had, I saw something recent, this Ramadan on, uh, in Saudi, it was on the news that the, you know, the, um, the astronomers were kind of at it with, uh, with the ulama, and they were having debates, like who has primacy on the saying, who dictates the month of Ramadan? Is it the ulama, the clergy, or is it the, you know, the observatory kind of people? And it's ridiculous because if you watch some of the interviews of the ulama, they'll say things like, uh, like the, let's say the observatory will say it's impossible to have seen the moon. So the, now there's a previous interview I once watched. There was this one, but there was a previous one, I think about two years ago, where the observatory report in Saudi said, no, no, it's impossible for that sighting to have happened. Um, and then they interview the sheikh, and the sheikh says, look, listen, you know, is Muslim, alhamdulillah, the Prophet said, if a Muslim comes, we accept it. And they said, you know, but Ahlul Falakiyat, they're saying that it was impossible. He goes, look, Inna Allah ala kulli shayin qadir. Allah is qadir upon everything. Are you questioning the qudra of Allah? I think, well, <laughs> you, you know, obviously he's clearly eligible for disability benefits, right? So the, the thing is, this is a stupid because that's not how the qudra of Allah works. The qudra of Allah isn't going to change the laws of in the Quran. You have, you know, that Allah says, Sunnat Allah, that He has, you'll never find the way, the sunnah that Allah has set out in nature and things to ever change. So, to to say that, oh no, God changed it, but he changed it because, oh, maybe he changed it. It doesn't work like that. So, um, did you want... No, yeah, I mean, all I wanted to comment on was this, because it's not, it's, not, it's not a contemporary struggle of our times, is yeah, it? Yeah, it's not. The struggle between modernity, yeah, yeah and embracing modernity, and, and, and the, and I'll refer to them as a cultural capital of Islam, because most of this comes out of Saudi Arabia, does, there's no yeah. doubt within yeah. that. Because you, look over, you can look over the last few centuries, even look at the lap part of the 18th century, you know, the, the, the opposition to using the printing press. No, true. That was embarrassing. That was embarrassing. Very so, embarrassing. The opposition to using printing press. Yeah. So you had the Europeans who were just churning out, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of pages and reams of, and books of literature. Yeah. And where the Muslim world was debating whether or not we could actually use a printing press. In order to press, you know. That's an, uh, so we, we have suffered before Massively. as well. And it's, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing because... In time to come, like nobody would even think now. Like, look, when imagine now the question of a printing press, nobody would even think nobody that that's an that, issue. That's right. Like, we wouldn't even issue. think that. Yeah. Why would they problem? It's like second nature to us that duh, that's obvious. It's halal. But they were going, you know, kufar, haram, you know, the, uh, you know, you got that screaming face. <laughs> so yeah, massively, and I, I agree with you. And I think this is why it's one of the biggest mistakes we can make uh, in our time is to put ourselves against science. Like we don't need to. There's no need. That's that's like there isn't even a fight, and we're just picking a fight. 
and we're picking a fight that we're going to definitely lose. <laughs> so it just makes no sense. Nah, but these issues, huh? So what else is apart from the the moon? Somebody asked the concept of jizya. Oh, jizya. Oh. All right, what else is? How come I can't hear any questions? <laughs>
right? We don't have his book anyway, his actual book. Now, he, we don't have his student's book. In fact, the books we have, the oldest partial manuscripts, are probably maybe fourth generation okay. after him. So you've got like a huge, and then it's not just that, you see. I wasn't trying to say that I think the whole book is made up. I wasn't saying that. I was saying that there is a, uh, there is a considerable amount of doubt in some things in that book. How do we know this? We know this because contrary to popular belief, Imam Bukhari's book in his day and age wasn't rated. Like I know today we think Imam Bukhari's book was really rated in his day and age. It wasn't. Uh, there were other great hafaz of hadith that didn't think anything of his book. They didn't even, they didn't ever big it up. They didn't, like people like Abu Zur'ah, the two legendary uh, Razis, like Abu Hatim al-Razi, Abu Zur'ah al-Razi, who were contemporaries and senior to Imam Bukhari. Like they were seen as more greater in, in Ilmul Hadith. They never rated his, there was uh, Abu Zur'ah al-Dimashqi, there was Abu Zur'ah al I mean, there were other great muhaddith who were seen as major muhaddithin in his time. Um, I'm not saying his, his book isn't worth all that. I'm just saying that they, like if you're judging by his contemporaries, his actual contemporaries, not those who came after him, his actual contemporaries, they might praise him. I'm not saying they belittled him. They did think he was good. They did think that. He was definitely a genius of his own uh, standing. That's, there's no debate about that. What they really seemed to praise was his Rijal book. So Abu Zur'a al-Razi and Abu Hatim and those people really praise his Tariq al-Kabir. So he, Imam Bukhari has a book on narrators. They were really impressed with that. So a lot of them, if you look at his contemporaries, they only seem to be speaking about his Tariq al-Kabir. They don't talk about his Sahih. <coughs> Nobody seems to think it's anything too impressive to talk about. Now, they do talk about his, his Tariq al-Kabir. In fact, one of these contemporary scholars presents it to the king at the time saying that, wow, this is such an amazing, you know, nobody's authored something like this. Um, then Imam Bukhari gets scandalized, unfortunately. I, I think unfairly scandalized. Some people watch my Bukhari gate, I don't know what the hell they were listening to. They thought I was dissing Imam mm -hmm. Bukhari. I wasn't. I was saying Imam Bukhari in his time was dissed by people. I actually sympathize with him and say that they were wrong for, uh, you know, persecuting him. So they persecute him. They kind of, so he spent several years towards the end of his life, the latter maybe 10 years of his life or more, around that time he spends just in misery. He's not this huge celebrity in his day and age that people think he, he, that he ought to be. I feel he ought to be, he was a genius, but he wasn't recognized for that. His own, most people, because of this scandal, whatever the scandal, they, there's mixed views on what the scandal was. Um, but for whatever it was, some people say, oh, they, it was to do with religious stuff. Scandals are never to do with religious stuff. Religious stuff is usually always the pretext, it's an excuse. So, whatever it was, they decided to get back at him. They expelled him from all these cities, ostracized him. He wasn't allowed entry into Bukhara, where he was from. Um, he wasn't allowed, like he was chucked out of many of like, like the key cities, Baghdad and other places. Although he was, so he would just travel. Um, he had in his lifetime so many students. So many, he did have students, there's no question. But many scholars did, and he was a great scholar. You see, the issue is, because in his last few years of his life, people stopped transmitting hadith from him because of the, cons because of the whole scandal. So nobody wanted to be blacklisted. 
So it's like, I suppose me, I can take my own example. I'm bloody radioactive, so I'm so toxic that if, you know, people are like, oh yeah, that's an interesting thing, but I can't say Mufti Abu Layth said it, because then people just say he's a deviant. So you're taking it from a deviant. So this is how it becomes. So people obviously don't want to touch something that is presumably toxic. Understandable, understandable. <laughs> right, but here we come. But the point is that so they were still they still thought that the guy is talented, but they used to kind of be weary. Most people abandoned him, and he had one two people that still stood by him. Um, Imam Muslim is an example. Imam Muslim stood by him, but then even Imam Muslim. Left him. <laughs> What's that? Uh, he says, Baad tere jane jaan, dil mein raha ajab sama. Yaad teri yahan rahi, phir teri yaad bhi hai. Now that's the... So this, this, this is Imam Bukhari. He, like, even Imam Muslim then kind of ditched him and thought, you know what, I love you, <laughs> but... My reputation is obviously on the line here, so hence Imam Muslim, despite being Imam Bukhari's teacher, sorry, his student, never transmits any hadith from him. There's no hadith in Sahih Muslim ever going through Imam Bukhari. He doesn't ever transmit from him because he's toxic. He doesn't want to include his name. In fact, one could argue that the muqaddimah, the introduction of Imam Muslim, where he's refuting an individual, not could argue, it is Imam Bukhari who is refuting his uh, muqaddimah, but the tone he uses, one could argue, is quite disrespectful, one could argue. Like he says that, you know, this martyr, this objector who says this is out of his mind and so and so on. He's been quite harsh in his tone if you read his introduction, because he's refuting, he doesn't name him, but it's Imam Bukhari because he's talking about the conditions of the Sahih. But Imam Bukhari's conditions were good. He did have uh, his kind of, he'd raised the bar. One could argue because he raised the bar, he got a lot of envy. He basically said like for a Sahih Hadith, the standards were that if you, for example, if you transmit from, uh, let's say, let's say Ibi is transmitting from Ustad Atifia now. So the thing is, if you just said, you, you see in Arabic they use this term an, right, which can have many translations, sometimes it means from, sometimes it means on, it can mean many things, it comes as a, with many verbs. But, so if you just say an atif, now that just means like from, like you've presumably heard it from. But it could be that you never heard it from him, but you've just heard that he used to say this. Mm. So you're just saying, oh, you know, from this guy, like, or on the authority of this guy, this is what's said. Now, in certain hadith, they declare it. They say, Haddathana, like he told me. Mm -hmm. Now, most hadith never have that. Like most, if, I mean, they do, but I mean, if you take the majority of hadith, don't. The majority of the hadith are just going to be anana, like an fulan, an fulan, an fulan, most of them. There's going to be many that do have Haddathana and Akhbarana and all this as well. I'm not saying they rank, but they, most are just like this. Now, most muhaddithin just had a rule that so long as you're contemporaries and you're reliable and you're reliable, that's considered a connected chain. Imam Bukhari kind of raised it and uh, he kind of took it a notch higher and he said, no, you must, if not in this narration, but in some narration, you must have declared that I've heard from him. 
So even if it's in a different, so so long as you in a different event are saying, oh, I heard Atif say this, it's something totally different, but I know, oh, you've actually met this person then. So now I can, it's still, I'm not 100% sure whether you heard this thing, but I've got some, you know, firmer ground to stand on. So this was the whole thing why Imam Bukhari kind of raised the thing, and they could have been envy, except all of Anyway, to kind of move on, the point was that because of his struggles in his last years, people weren't transmitting the book from him, he dies, the only person who transmits the book from him, who we have all these narrations go back to, is one person called Frabri. Now Frabri is a bit problematic because nobody, he was not Imam Bukhari's kind of rated student at all. At all. And this is, everything else is just engineered. You know people start saying Imam, for, Imam Frabri. Well, okay, I suppose if you just want to call anybody an imam who has an attachment to hadith, fine. But if you're making out as though he's some kind of legendary, epic imam, he wasn't. He's unknown of. I mean, he's unknown. Like, nobody... Who, who is Frabri? Because this is the question, that who is Frabri? Because in his lifetime, no major scholar of hadith ever vouched for him. And it was a tradition to be vouched for. <laughs> even though they knew of him. And there's this famous statement, and you know, some people try to refute me by saying, oh, there's a famous statement. And that statement was actually a refutation of them. The famous statement says, Imam Bukhari, Farabari is saying, Dhabi even quotes this. But it's so absurd and so stupid that even Dhabi tries to kind of say, uh, you know, apologize for it. Because it's so stupid that he says, oh, there used to be 90,000 students of Imam Bukhari, they used to all come and I used to go. And Alhamdulillah, Farabri saying, Alhamdulillah, none of them have uh, are alive today to transmit Bukhari. Uh, or none of them today continue to transmit it except me. Like I'm the only one left. And you think, well, huh? <laughs> well, there were many students that died after him, after Farabri, that Imam Bukhari had. That, and Farabri isn't even... Acknowledge, nobody even acknowledges him. Like none of the great muhaddithin say, oh, he's a thiqa, he's trustworthy. The people that do say that come, if you're going to be honest, mm -hmm. they come hundreds of years later. But the one that they try to use is Sam'ani, who comes up over a hundred years later. But even Sam'ani, I've said there was a problem. Sam'ani allegedly said, oh, Farabri is a thiqa, is reliable. Uh, first of all, he'd never met Farabri. He'd probably never met anybody who'd met Farabri. Like if I told you, can you talk about somebody in 1919, in the world, in World War I, this is his name, talk about him. I mean, come on, like in, when World War I was going on, how many people do you know that directly know somebody that was alive then? Mm -hmm. So, chances are you don't. So I mean, to, to, so him, first of all, Sam'ani saying, yeah, I give him the go-ahead. Question is... <laughs> <laughs> we need somebody that actually knew him. So, you know, you can say anything. I mean, with all due respect. But there was question marks on Sam'ani as well, because Sam'ani allegedly says this in his book. But then Sam'ani's son, Abu Sa'd Sam'ani, who has a book on Ansab, who then uh, is quoting, when he quotes, when he mentions Farabri in his book, this is the, this is the son of uh, the father uh, who's allegedly said, Farabri is reliable. His son, when he mentions Farabri, doesn't mention his father having vouched for him. Whereas for other people, he does. 
So there's a question, and some people said in that Samani's book, the father's book, that it was missing in some manuscripts. Mm -hmm. So was this an interpolation that some people had put in later on? Or was it, I mean, we don't know, but it's definitely questionable. And even if we give it, even if it's a given, it's still doubtful because it's over a hundred years later. Then the question was that Farabri himself, his own students, he has like many students, but he has like six popular ones and three who are the prime students. Now, his main student, who is Abu Ishaq al-Mustamli, he openly says that our teacher's book, his copy of, of Bukhari was incomplete. And then he himself says, oh by the way, his chapter headings and things were all over the place, so we used to move them around. We used to put hadith in this, in this chapter, and we used to change chapter headings, and we used to do... So, and people have accepted his statement as a valid statement. Abaji accepted it, Ibn Hajar accepted it. So there's a lot of hands at play here, moving things around. I'm not saying they're evil, but it's human error. The manuscripts differ. You know, if you look at the hadith, the students transmitting it, they've got different versions, they've got different chains. There's hundreds missing in different narrations. Um, even like the narration that Imam Bukhara, sorry, Ibn Hajar relies on isn't the one we've got today. There's at least a few hundred missing in the one for, uh, that, you know, or variation between the one we've got. And, and so my point was that this whole thing, and there was more things I kind of gave to the Bukhari gate, like I spoke about this great Yunini's great project, this scholar who emerges um, in about like the 7th century kind of thing. He is commissioned to kind of collect Sahil Bukhari and correct all the mistakes in it. And he, he has this great project, uh, and he's, he, he takes help from grammarians, like Ibn Malik is a good friend of his, the famous grammarian. And the point was that he does this, and he corrects it. My first question was, what on earth was he correcting if everything was already so correct? But okay, let's just go with, let's roll with that he corrected it. So his corrected version becomes, you know, the version. But then we don't even have his manuscript. His manuscript is lost. We have a copy of his manuscript. How do you know the person copying didn't make mistakes? Make mistakes yeah. So my point is, these are thousands of hadith. So with this in mind, I just left some question mark. I, I did not say the conclusion was not pick up Sahil Bukhari, throw it in the bin. Mm -hmm. It was never that, and I've never said that. And, uh, the, and the conclusion was not disrespect Sahil Bukhari. The question was not... My point was, my conclusion was simply that if we find something in there that contradicts with reason, or it contradicts with the Qur'an, it clashes with the Qur'an, or with the established sunnah, the character of the Prophet that we know, then we must discard it. That thing, that's been... How do you contrast that with Muattal, for example? Wouldn't the same problems or similar problems? Yeah, they could be, but the the issue with... Okay, the thing was, first of all, people don't raise the Muattal up there, which, personally, I think they should raise it above Bukhari, but they don't, unfortunately. Uh, secondly, Muatta doesn't have that many hadith in it, so it doesn't have that many problems. So you have Imam Bukhari, I mean Imam Malik, even in his most like copious kind of edition version, probably has about 1,900 hadith. Whereas if you look at Imam Bukhari's, around 7,700, 7,700 approximately, give or take. So you're looking at there's a huge difference. Secondly, Imam Malik himself, and this or thirdly, this is the greatest point. In the Muatta of Imam Malik, and this is why I give this preference, Imam Malik himself teaches you to reject hadith. Mm -hmm. So he'll bring a hadith that's absolutely sahih, 
and he'll say, by the way, I don't know what this hadith is on about, we don't go by. He's teaching you to reject and to accept. So whether, like he's giving you tools, now Imam Bukhari isn't doing, Imam Bukhari is kind of giving you as though this is, this is it, take it, you know, I've done. But then we can't, we don't even know if this is his book entirely. But that's the thing, you can't attribute that back to Imam Bukhari, can you? Because not with not nowhere near 100%, yeah. That, that is 100% the content that 100%, yeah. compiled back And they can't all be, so for example, we've got variations. So they can't all be the versions of yeah, Imam Bukhari. Yeah. Some yeah. must definitely have discrepancies. Yeah. So that's in a nutshell, you so know, the whole thing summarized. One quick question, you might want to conclude. That's a that very good question. That what is it that kind of, um, and these are, by the way, I wish people would do research on these kind of questions. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have a culture in the Muslim world to really give this so much importance. I feel that Imam Bukhari's thing definitely in his, in his time wasn't. In the years that followed, like the generations that came, it definitely was amongst the competing uh, kind of book. So there were other books like Muslims book, Abu Dawood, Tarmidhi, and other people. Like so, they would have had books who kind of like disappeared. So we don't, they didn't get kind of further. Like they lost uh, popularity. Now, it seems that despite you see the early Muhaddithin still seem quite critical. Like they're not shy in criticizing Bukhari. So for example, you'll have Darqutni who comes probably you know you could say almost a hundred years after. Um, or around that, you know, he's in the following century, where he openly criticizes several hadith in Bukhari, around 200 hadith, and he's not shy about that. You have other scholars that come, they criticize Bukhari's sahih, they're not shy about it. But there seems to, along the way, um, develop a culture where it becomes enshrined with this sanctity that nobody can touch it. I feel, I could be wrong, but I feel that that begins with like Ibn Salah. Uh, but this would need a lot of, a lot more research to see does is that because Ibn Salah is this uh, personality or this character. He's a Shafi'i who's around the kind of 600s. He, what he does is he tries to crystallize the science of Hadith. So his book in Usul Hadith uh, is kind of Muqaddimah, and he has this uh, like a book on explaining the different types of Hadith. Everybody who comes after him just relies on his book. They've either summarized his book or versified it or given commentaries to everything. It's just he is like the Copernican moment in Usul Hadith. So, and Ibn Salah seems to really give this maqam to um, Sahih Bukhari, the Sahihain. And he feels that Sahihain um, almost are like Qat'i. That if that these are what the ummah have accepted now, so talaqatul ummah bil qubul, the ummah has accepted this, so we should submit, and and then the person who kind of cements it further and just puts a, the icing on it is Ibn Hajar. Ibn Hajar really seals the deal. After Ibn Hajar, nobody is questioning Sahih Bukhari at all. Ibn Hajar really kind of gives this culture a huge shift a huge boost a nitro boost this culture of mutawatir this culture of uh, sahihain this culture of um, and he obviously he may you know he was very passionate about hadith i get that ibn hajar is, is I, I do like him it's not that i don't like him but i just feel that these individuals had such an impact on 
um, on the rest of the Muslim world, like subconsciously, like Mus like let's say the other, like let's say the Hanafis used to always diss the Shafi'is, and and vice versa, like they would say, oh we're superior, and they would say we're superior, and blah blah blah. They have this thing, but the Shafi'is always had this kind of like textualist approach. Like, you know, it's always the hadith, like it's the letter of the law, it's not the spirit of the law, it's like, you know, it's always like that. And the Maliki is the same thing, they kind of had a su supremacist ideology, if you like, that we're superior, and you know, it's not about the letter of the law, you know, it's all about maslaha, wealthy, and Imam Malik saying, oh yeah, you can leave this hadith, you can leave that hadith, you know, all this kind of mentality. But you see, around the time of Ibn Salah and Ibn Hajar and all those other muhaddithin that come along, along Al-Iraqi and all these people that solidify this concept in similar times, uh, these Shafi'is, they're all Shafi'is. What happens is what, um, what some modern scholars, um, I do like uh, what Dr. Sherman Jackson as well, he terms the Shafi'ization of the other schools takes place. So on a subconscious level they become like they're arguing against something, like if you keep saying, so it's like the way the Salafis started bashing everybody with Sahil Bukhari, Sahil Bukhari, like a few generations, I mean not generations, a few decades. decades ago. Like about, let's say in the 90s it became a big thing, oh this is Sahil Bukhari, this is Sahil Bukhari. So then what, what the other have started to do is try to also prove, oh no, our evidence is also in Bukhari. Look, look, we've all, we're also using Bukhari. Yeah, because what know. happens is when you set the benchmark, I kind of have to justify myself through that benchmark. Ooh. So I start using it too. Like so, all of a sudden, this the madhabs in the last two decades have done all these works to show hadith. Look, and the Maliki madhab. Look, we're using Bukhari. Hanafi madhab has tried to say, look, this is also in Sahih Muslim. It's in Sahih Bukhari. This is so a similar thing happened back then that these madhabs started because they were so kind of rivaling the Shafi'is on Sahih Adid, Sahih Adid. They kind of embodied that thing. And they started turning their madhab into another version of... But that's a different, longer discussion, I guess, for another day. But cool. I hope that helps. Uh, go, go. Contradiction. No, they have a chain. I have a chain that goes back to. But that, you say that, that my chain proves that uh, they learned the whole of Bukhari, unless they contradict right. yours. No, no. So the the thing is, there's a different thing in Isnad. Like I have a chain. Like so, my teacher who learned from him, who learned from him, who learned from him. But what did they learn? Like this is the question. Like we don't know exactly what they learned. We just know that it's called Sahil Bukhari. But the so for example, the books everybody the Sahil Bukhari today is based on the the manuscript called the Sultaniyah from Sultan Abdul Hamid II's time. He had a, bu a bunch of scholars from Al-Azhar do some work and create a manuscript. So they, so today's Sahil Bukhari is pretty much based on that. We don't have one that goes directly back to Frabri as in with manuscripts. Like we might have, like so for example imagine you said uh, like I don't know, let's, take, let, let, let's say you, I haven't read any of the Harry Potter books, but let's say you've said you read a particular Harry Potter book. Now he says he read a Harry Potter book and he read a Harry Potter book. And now Harry Potter books, the original, the author, the manuscripts are missing. And the other versions that we have, they slightly differ. Like in this one, there's another extra chapter and this one has this along the way. And by the time it gets to you, 
there's a universal copy that everybody has. Now, when he's saying that, oh, I've read Harry Potter 2, was that the exact same one that you read or was yours different slightly? That nobody can tell. They can just say, yeah, you read it as well. What was it? We know it was more or less similar, but was it exact? Did he have an extra chapter? Did he have this missing? Did he have... That's the issue. And to, you know, I'm not trying to dismiss any of the, the scholars or anything, but most people are not clued up on this. You know, this whole uh, manuscript thing. Um, when I spoke to people, most of them, <clears throat> scholars I mean, I don't mean regular people, they don't have a clue. This is why none of them, I mean, first of all, answering my, my thing rested on the manuscript discrepancy, and it rested on, uh, obviously, blasphemies in Sahih al-Bukhari, and it rested on Farabari, you can't uh, authenticate him. Th they didn't even know about this authentication thing, because I think it just blew their mind. Because it's, it's not, a, nobody can, because it's not done. Like, as in, nobody vouched for him, so even if you want Unless to vouch for him, how... make something cook for him, they didn't have any answer. No, so on this point, so when I, so for example, the blasphemies that I said in Bukhari, yeah. they can answer, like as in, they can provide an explanation. So I said, look, this disrespects the Prophet. Like the Prophet saying to a woman, give yourself to me, and then trying to touch her and things like this, since Sahih Bukhari, this, this is obviously nonsense, it goes against the character of the Prophet. So they, they'll try and interpret, no, you know, maybe he was doing this, no, he didn't maybe mean to grab her like that, maybe he was trying to touch her like this, oh, he was already married to her, but then it doesn't make sense because they say, when he said, give yourself to me, they say, oh, by give yourself, he meant marry me. So if, he, if he's asking to marry, then that means she's not married to him. And then why is he trying to touch her? So these kind of things are, I said, blasphemous and mistakes. They should be accepted as that. So these things they can try to explain. They can try to explain those. I'm not saying they can't try to explain. They can. I'm not happy with the explanation, but they can explain them. The discrepancies, they can a very poor job of explaining. They've just said, they've tried to lie. Like say, oh, the discrepancies ain't huge. They're just, oh, here's the name is Amr and there the name is Omar. No, it isn't. Stop lying, right? The entire chain's bloody different. The hadith are missing. Hundreds of hadith are missing. They've got like complete variation. It's not like don't, don't like at least be honest about the argument, and then explain it. So on this, they've given a very poor, half-hearted answer. As to authenticating Farabri, nobody can do it because how can you do it? Because he wasn't authentic. It's like saying, you know, if. I don't know, if Einstein didn't publish a particular book, how can you now make him pub have published it? Obviously, Frobri is dead. The people around him are dead in his time. So nobody, we can't make somebody vouch for him now. So nobody vouched for him. So they're all dead. I mean, that ship has long sailed. So what can you do? So they're utterly stuck on that one. So I mean, that was, and they don't, they don't most people probably didn't even know that Frobri wasn't vouched for until it started to become a bit of a big deal. And then they, when they looked into it, they probably got a bit surprised. So, yeah. Um, just to move on, it's not that Yeah, sure, 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 let's move on. No, 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 Tariq al-Kabir was uh, like, a, like when he wrote it, he was unique. People hadn't really written biographies like a dictionary of narrators the way he did. So his book really took off. So one of the interesting things is when Imam Bukhari kind of, uh, in his final days, when he's about to pass, he spends his, uh, he travels and he ends up uh, staying with somebody. Uh, you know, seeks lodging with this person. And the guy's name is, 
I think it's Ibn, Ibn Faris al-Dallal or something. Right, so this person then transmits from Bukhari, but he transmits the Tariq al-Kabir. He doesn't transmit his Sahih. If I knew you were going to come prepared, I wouldn't apply. <laughs> Can we delete this? <laughs> Quick, <laughs> burn the place down, let's go. <laughs> no, what, what do you mean it has issues with, uh, like as in they're problematic? Yeah. Narrators, as in he's got them in there? Yeah. yeah, it doesn't, yeah, no, I don't mean, you see, everybody who Bukhari has vouched for, are they credible? That's a different discussion. I totally agree that they're not credible. There's many people because there's people that Imam Bukhari has accepted who other people have said are da'if. Abu Zura al-Razi has said da'if. Abu Hatim al-Razi has said is da'if. Many people, Nasa'i has problematized several people that Bukhari transmits from. Bukhari transmits from certain people who were hardline uh, Kharijis. They were Khawarij, like hardline, like, like basically like today's version of ISIS, but on steroids, like that. <laughs> so. Yet, Bukhari has no problem transmitting from them. But other scholars are like, what the hell? How, how are you transmitting from these people? These people are like butchers. And so, but yet, so I'm not saying I agree with his list of, even those people didn't all agree necessarily with the content, but they liked the book. Like they thought, wow, that's a unique composition that you've done here with the, you know, the dictionary of names, the way you did it. So they were impressed with it. I don't think... They were kind of saying, oh, this is supreme, but they just rated it. They did like it. That's what I meant by it. So it, my key point there was even in his last days, the guy that, who he stays with decides to take his Tariq al-Kabir and put his name to it, but doesn't take his Sahih. So that guy doesn't transmit his Sahih. But think about it, this is in the last days of Imam Bukhari, and he still doesn't you know, take that. He takes his Tariq al-Kabir, though, and he's one of the main transmitters of that. But yeah, moving on, I mean, that's enough of uh, Bukhari. Okay, Rahman, and then we'll come to Bukhari. Yeah. I was going to go to um, a question about Al-Usul uh, Al-Thalatha by Imam Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab Al-Thalatha. Sheikh, Rahmatullah. Sheikh, Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab. Sheikh Najd. So like... Um, I feel, I kind of feel impure saying his name. Yeah, Sabek Bar Wuzugar. What are your thoughts on, if you've read it, what are your thoughts on that text? And like, let's say that. I don't mean any, in any promiscuous sense. I don't mean like he broke my wudu by hearing his name. I meant like for, for the sanctification, just in case people. It's clearly a delayed response here. <laughs> so the question, in case people didn't hear it, is by Mutia. In case you want to get back to him, people for criticizing Al Sheikh and the Sheikh, right? So is Sheikh uh, <laughs> Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab uh, Tamimi. Allah, Allah. What is it? What is the Nasi Tamma ila Tamimi? Bani Tamimi, a great tribe amongst the Arabs, right? But anyway, 
And they're also going to be the supporters of the Dajjal according to the Hadith, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but relax, because all the Hadith about the Dajjal are made up. <laughs> Got some good news and bad news. <laughs> right, so the thing is, right, now so, uh, so he, he has a book, amongst many books, called Usul al-Salata to do with Creed. And what do I think of it? I mean, I, I'm not really impressed by Sheikh uh, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab's books at all. Uh, I mean, who would be? They're very basic and very kind of a bit, in their way, a bit very dogmatic, very kind of, it's, they're very simple books. I mean, they're not, I'm not saying he hasn't written anything. I haven't read all of his things. Uh, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I've read all his things. I'm not like a fan of his like that or anything. But, I've, you know, you can see his Kitab al-Tawheed and you can see this Usul al-Salatha and all these. I don't see what these things are really about, the, the three major, it's like a bit like the Trinity, isn't it? This, the three, Rasul al-Salatha, you know, the, the three things that they want to teach you, and Asma wa Sifat, and you know, they, they want to go through the whole, you know, the way they do Taqseem of, this is how we understand God through his Rububiyya and his Uluhi. I remember when I first came across this stuff, many years ago, I was like, what the hell are they? They used to ask, do you know about Allah's rububiyya and his uluhiyya? And I'm thinking, do you, do you know, you know it's Tawheed, so I was like, Tawheed, okay, I understood Tawheed, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but Tawheed al-Rububiyya, <laughs> and you're like, what the hell is that? <laughs> Tawheed al-Uluhiyya, I mean, look, <coughs> this stuff, I think, Ibn Taymiyyah. Can it be proven from the Salaf? Like, of course, none of this is from the Salaf. None of this is from the Salaf. They prove, I'll debate any Salafi, <laughs> any Salafi, Al-Ladith, so long as he's a scholar, he's learned, like, not just people to yeah, waste like my time. <laughs> wherever, wherever. But he's learned, like I don't just want, you know, just waste my time. Remember. I mean, I'd rather be watching TV <laughs> than wasting my time just talking to you. But if, so long as he's, he's studied, I'll debate him on this. Prove it to me from the Quran or Sunnah. I've had this discussion with so many Salafi, only Quran or Sunnah. Never can do it. Never. Can't prove any of this. This Sifat thing. How can you prove it from the Quran? It's not in the Quran. Do you think the Prophet taught people to believe like this? Of course he didn't. Who of the Salaf ever taught Imam Malik ever speak like this? Guys, by the way, we gotta believe like this about God. We gotta never. We don't have anything about creed from the Salaf. Generally, I mean, we have the fact that they believed in one God. I don't mean like bare essentials, like absolute. So, so this is why I've said to people when it comes to belief, you just say, Amantu billahi wa malaikat. You know, I believe in Allah, His angels, His messengers. You know, I believe that there's been revelation. I believe that there will be an afterlife, like this is and everything, and that Allah is all in control of everything. And khalas, that's it. There's nothing really more. That's all the Prophet taught. Everything else people put in, and they put it in, we're talking like almost 300 years after the Prophet. Almost, give and take. You know, give or take. So, it's a bit like the Nicene Church kind of thing. So you've got, where does all this kalam and all this creed and all this come from? It doesn't come from the Sahaba, it doesn't come from... They never spoke about... And this, you know, oh, Allah can only through, see through his, his, through his kind of attribute. What the hell are these? You know, Ibn Rushd. The Maliki, he, he tore this to pieces. He said, what on earth? at that time as well, oh. like making that same argument, like during the time of Ibn Rush. 
the what? Atheries, like you know. Oh yes, so the Atheries today, who they call Atheries or the Salafis, were historically called Hanbalis in Aqidah, <coughs> right? So in the past, you had them; they were just called Hanbalis. Uh, so Ibn Taymiyyah would never have called himself an Athari; he would call himself a Hanbali in Aqidah. Really? Yeah, of course, of course. So he's in fact Ibn Taymiyyah had the argument against him that when he was charged with these crimes or whatever. I don't believe in, by the way, I disagree with that. I disagree with, uh, you know, them imprisoning Imam, uh, or, no, Imam Abu Ibn Taymiyyah. Imam. <laughs> you know, so uh, I disagree with them imprisoning him for having a voice. Yeah. Even even though I disagree with what he had to say. But to, to shut people up like that by throwing them in prison because it's just envy, it's just jealousy, it's just, you know, if you, you, can't, if you can't shut somebody up with arguments, then you should just shut up. You know, like, if I can't talk to you, that isn't the way to say lock him up. So I disagree with that, but that said, um, one of the things they'd said to him was, look, just, we have no problem with you believing this, just say it's Hanbali. He was saying that, no, this, ain't ham this is Ahl-Sunnah, and you guys are out of Ahl-Sunnah. This is what caused the kind of the rift. I mean, I'm sure there were other issues, but this was the apparent issue that they used as a pretext. So, I mean, th this aqidah has been around as the Hanbali aqidah. They date it back to Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. Other Sunnis say that, now nah, we don't believe it was him. We believe it's falsely attributed to him. This is it. This is it. I'll tell you something that is quite ironic, actually. Um, and that is that Islam is, a, in essence, a faith. So it's come to do with believing. This is what Islam is in essence about, about believing. Yet nobody told us at all what to believe in for almost 200 years. It's ironic, isn't it? Like, it's, like nobody actually mentioned, like they mentioned thousands and thousands of Masail in fiqh. So Imam Malik's Mudawwana has at least about 30,000 Masail. Imam Abu Hanifa's Zahir al-Riwaya has about 100,000 Masail of fiqh, you know, should I rent, or I've got this, it's at the end of this month and that month, or we use this container, I bought this transaction, I want a refund, I want this, I bought two camels, but one was like this, and I've got these grains, and I've got this, and I've got... And they go into so much detail, but nobody actually taught what to believe, nobody. Uh, which is strange. Uh, I do find that strange to be fair, but it's interesting as well because it goes to show what they started to do was they started to say along the way, okay, we don't believe that though. So that's what. So for example, when the the Khawarij emerged, the Khawarij were the first major kind of uh, you know split here. So they started to say, okay, we don't believe that you know by committing sins you're a kafir. But they never said what we do believe. They just said, but we don't believe that. When the Shia became prominent, and especially those Shia that started to, let's say, curse, for example, uh, or even if the Shia didn't curse, let's say the, the Shia giving preference to Ali, they started to say, but really, in all honesty, you know this caliphate issue, is it even a belief issue? I mean, today people will say it is, but is it? Is, I mean, this is a historical issue. I understand it's to do with legitimacy and, and honoring. And I do, I am uh, obviously Sunni, I do agree in the order that it went. I, I mean, I honor the order, I accept that there was a difference of opinion even amongst the Sahaba between Osman and Ali, as in who should have gone first or whatever, but generally Abu Bakr being first, Omar being second, these kind of things I definitely uh, agree with, hence even Imam uh, Abu Hanifa, what they attribute to, he didn't say the whole order, he said, I give the two sheikhs 
absolute precedent, you know, of Bakr and Umar. And then because they acknowledged that there was a bit of difference amongst the others. But my point is, is it really a belief issue? As in, did God, before creating the worlds, think, okay, I think everybody should believe that this was the order of the caliphal structure? No, I mean, that's not really... But Jello, whatever politics, I accept. So they started to say, okay, we don't believe in cursing the Sahaba. Fine, okay. So they started to identify with what we're not. Yet, what are we? So they don't say. Someone asked me, like, let's say if I go to Medina, someone asks me, like, oh, what's your aqidah? Like, should I just tell them, like, I want to be there? Oh, yeah, they'll definitely let you in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, today nobody really understands. Like, so for example, the term Sunni, yeah. as in Ahl Sunnah, in all honesty, didn't exist till probably about two, three hundred years probably after the Prophet existed. Probably around that time, yeah. Maybe about two to three hundred in between. So in Imam Malik's time, he would never have used the word we are Sunni or Ahl Sunnah. Because the Ahl didn't. Unless they were using it in a different context to mean like Sunnah meaning Hadith or the oh, yeah, teaching. Yeah. But today, Ahl Sunnah means like the oh, orthodoxy of Islam. Like yeah. even, even within Ahl Sunnah, there's a split. Who's Ahl Sunnah really? Yeah, I mean, there is that split. But I mean, when did this word yeah. even start to get like be, emerge that we are Ahl Sunnah? So people say it began with Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari, which it may have. Uh, or it began after him. But then within, <coughs> maybe by the 300, it's definitely there. But was it there in the time of like Imam Abu Hanifa now? Definitely wasn't. They would have just said, we are Muslims. Uh, that's it. But we are the main. They would have probably said, we're the main body of Muslims. And it's an interesting discussion that how did this orthodoxy form? And I like what uh, Dr. Omar Abdullah has a, a whole series on this, um, the four schools and things like this. And Or is it in his Aqidah one, which is about like, it's about 14 lectures or something. But in there, he speaks about this study of Hadith became a trait by which the, the proto-Sunnis, if we can call them that, like the Salaf, began to identify as a movement. Like, we are the orthodoxy. And how do you know you're the orthodoxy? You study Hadith. So hence, Abu Hanifa had a hard time being transparent as, an, as the orthodoxy because he wasn't really committed to studying Hadith. So the orthodoxy, you find them that they started, and it just became like a trend. And, and I think that's George Maktasi in his, uh, his book of... <laughs> I think George Maktasi in his Rise of Islamic Colleges, whatever, speaks about this, or in one of his books about how, how did the Sunni mainstream become identified as the Sunni mainstream. So I, I think it began with this, like, we, ident we kind of, we, this is our trait. We study hadith. And then they rivaled each other, obviously, for supremacy. I have some very deep questions going on today, Hadith. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so what they had was, no, they, they had, uh, you had, uh, they had papyrus and things like that, what they, like parchment, which they would write on. So a kind of paper, paper had formed that papyrus kind of paper, uh, definitely by their time, because it's in the Abbasid's time that paper becomes, I mean, that version, I'm not saying it's the A4 kind of paper today, but that version of paper is made available, which allows 
um, you know, the, the Bayt al-Hikmah in Baghdad and these places to do mass translation of the Greek works because the Muslims are using paper and other people ain't. And they start to import a lot. They call it, they call it kahid, actually, which from the Farsi, we still, in order to call it kahaz, same kind of thing. So, um, so this, this thing did exist, like the, you know, the, the papyri kind of uh, documents. It was there, and they used to, so if you read, they used to, like I've read some of the classical in their works, I mean in their works, which are really old, saying that one volume, would, like one sifar, would have usually 20 pages. So they, they had like a system, and this is going very old, so I'm talking about, I'm reading from people like 900 years ago, saying that this is how books are organized, like one sifar, one kind of set, small, uh, bounded thing has 20 pages, and then we have so many like that. That's how they do them. So they did have books and things. So, but I mean, they're not as neat as our books today, but they did have, yeah, yeah. What's up to the question online, sorry. <laughs> it's, you see, the thing is, to really understand it, we've got we to gotta zoom out. Okay. To really understand it. If you want to just, at that level, we're too zoomed in, it's too close, and we're just emotional. Like, oh, I mean, I personally do believe that, look, Sayyidina Ali, radiallahu an was... Uh, one of the greatest Sahaba, and I do personally believe that if I was just going by merits, he would. No, no. It's usually Nav doing that for us. <laughs> Interrupts there. No, no. Right. So, if I was just going by meritocracy, I would personally believe that Sayyidina Ali was above Sayyidina Uthman. Uh, that's just a personal choice uh, by meritocracy. But I disagree with personally the whole Shia way of looking at things, like treating like every companion is can be criticized except Sayyidina Ali. So I, I, I don't understand that logic either. But uh, that said, this is just an emotional thing at that, at that scale. You know, like we're too zoomed in, we've got to zoom out. See, when you zoom out, you realize that you're zooming out with not just space, but time. Space-time, people, Einstein speak, right? So we're zooming out. This goes way predates the Prophet, okay? You see, Mecca, by the way, I, th I think that's a, this is a discussion for another day. Mecca wasn't most likely the thriving kind of city and everything that we assume, but it was definitely a town trying to get its, its kind of place, as in they were trying to be recognized. They had a Kaaba. Uh, the people, Quraysh, obviously, who feel honor this Kaaba, um, really are embodied by, you've got two main strands that come through them. The main strand that seems to be like the kind of, I don't know, like the Chaudhrys, if you want to say, of that age, like they think, is, is the Bani Umayyah. <clears throat> right, this person, Umayyah, he's, his kind of offspring seem to hold that role. They seem to be like the, the kind of like the daddies and the dons 
of that Mecca, whatever it is, although it's quite a small town, but they still seem to hold that role. You, you seem to find that they is through their offspring, so um, Harab, who is the father of Abu Sufyan. Um, so through this lineage you get like from them, you're going to get Harb, you'll get Abu Sufyan, you'll get Muawiyah. Uthman is also from Bani Umayyah, all these people are from Bani Umayyah. Uh, but let's say now Harb, who's the father of Abu Sufyan, he, one of his close associates is one of the first people to introduce writing, the way we know writing today, into Mecca. They call it the Jism script. The Arabs actually had an ancient script, which is not the current day script. Um, they used to call that Musnad al-Khat al-Hamiyari. Now, it's today called South Arabian script, and it looks a bit like hieroglyphics. The Qur'an and the Arabic we have today is, was a kind of modern Arabic that they seem to be importing around the time of the Prophet, when the Prophet's young and growing up. Maybe he's not that young, he's probably uh, a young man, but he's not a Prophet yet. So, um, he's around that age, so you get people like Harb, uh, has this associate who comes, who brings, he, he learns it from further north. This was in essence the Nabataean script um, that the Arabs then adopt. He marries that guy to his own daughter, who's the sister of Abu Sufyan, and so obviously makes this guy family. So you can see that they are bringing in writing to uh, Mecca, into the Hijaz, that part of Hijaz. Yeah. They obviously consider themselves to be like the, you know, we are it. Hashim, it seems, it may seem that Banu Hashim may have been involved in Hashim may have been involved in setting up the kind of trade contracts. He may have had some deal in that, and so there's there's always been this competition: who controls the haram? You know, who's the who's the big guy here? Between these, so initially, when the prophet look, when the prophet comes out with the message. Um, if you read some of the ancient poetry of what the Meccans say, they seem to be saying that this is just the Hashim, Bani Hashim, trying to do something to gain popularity. Now, initially, the Meccans never accept it because they don't see Hashim above them. But when the Prophet migrates to Medina and then Islam kind of spreads to other tribes, now, Hashim are not seen as just Hashim, they're seen as Quraysh. And Umayyah also Quraysh. So it's like, like imagine now, like, like, let's say, I don't know, let's say most people here are Pakistan, I don't know, they're not all, but let's just give an example, like, let's say we're Pakistani. But we've got different, like, some people could be Bakhtun, some people could be, what is it, we're from, let's say, Azad Kashmir, some people from different, and we could have, let's just say, people have rivalries like issues, like I don't mean like they have to be bloody rivalries, but they could always, maybe they look, you know, they see that person contemptuously or... But imagine for some reason, like some, like let's say Abu Muawiyah there rises with a thing and because we say, oh, he's a Pathan, you know, we're not Pathan, so, you know, we're not going to give this, ah, oh, this is just a thing some Pathans have come up with, oh, it's crazy. But all of a sudden, let's say this thing takes off in the UK, but the rest of the UK see it as a Pakistani thing. So we now also start to take pride in it because we are also Pakistani. So in that way, this is what seems to have happened. So because Quraysh got given precedence because of the Prophet, so Bani Umayyah also are Quraysh. So hence they kind of give in to the whole message as well. They embrace Islam. They become part of it because Quraysh now is, you know, the Prophet said, Al-Aimma min Quraysh, the Imams will be from Quraysh. So 
later on, the thing with is that you see this when you look at who starts to set up structural powers throughout the Muslim world, like Muawiyah in the time of Umar radiallahu an is placed as a governor in Sham. I think he replaces his brother first, but he becomes the governor. He, he actually stabilizes Sham and has a very strong loyal following and does a lot of work there. Now, in Uthman's time, many other people, because the kingdom grew so vast, how, who do you place in charge of money? People you trust. Who do you trust? He trusts family. So he starts to place, you know, family who are who? Bani Umayyah in all these places. Now that, that, that kind of thing starts to kindle again, that these people have returned to power. Now the thing was in Ali's time, when he vied for it, or like kind of like rose for the, let's say, for leadership, it triggered that Hashim versus Umayyah again. But Umayyah, as they were before, but now they were an incredibly powerful force. Like they were actually very powerful. And Islam had become recognized as a Qurayshi thing, but and especially an Umawi thing. Because they were Bani Umayyad, they were the, the, the people in charge, like as in, in powerful positions. So and Bani Hashim were never seen as like in my understanding, they were they were kind of seen as the Sharif people, in my understanding. Like, you know, like the Allah Ali and like that kind of, they weren't seen as the kind of like vicious people or like that kind of, so they, they were seen as a, a bit more like holy and, and nice. But that image doesn't go too well when you're trying to fight against about kingdoms. Because, you know, the niceties, everybody likes them, but nobody goes with them. You know, they want, they want, they think, oh, no, 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 I'm going to, you know, so Bani so this whole thing with Sayyidina Ali and Muawiyah, and to be honest, it wasn't even Sayyidina Ali and Muawiyah. The thing was that it was actually first between Sayyidina Ali and the other companions. I think that, this is my personal opinion, that the reason they seem to put it all on Muawiyah is because he's a softer target than people like Zubair and other great companions who first fought against Sayyidina Ali. But the point was that after, let's say all of them have passed, then the Umayyad dynasty starts to kind of because Muawiyah keeps it in the family because he's not going to let it go let's just be honest because he, he even says see look even what they transmit from Muawiyah even people who don't like Muawiyah he says that this this matter will stay amongst Quraysh and he says who are the top potential candidates from Quraysh today and he says there's only like four like to say possibly five there was Abdullah ibn Zubayr there was Abdullah ibn Abbas. This is when he's handing it over to Yazid, his son. There's, um, you've got, wait there, you've got Abdullah ibn Zubayr, Abdullah ibn Abbas, Abdullah ibn Umar, and you've got, uh, who are we talking about? You've got Hassan, obviously the Prophet's grandson. Um, and you've got Hassan Hussein, but I don't know whether he was considering, I don't think he considered maybe Hussein as a threat. But he's, I think he felt, he felt Hassan may have been because he was older. And I think he mentioned, what's his name, Abdurrahman ibn Abi Bakr, Abu Bakr's son, who actually just dies that year. So he's not a threat. Like, he just dies of natural causes. But he, they say, was actually one of the most hot-headed. So he was actually a huge threat. He's very outspoken, Abu Bakr's son. The other one, not Muhammad, the one who 
uh, was part of killing Uthman. But this one, Abu Bakr, Abdurrahman, sorry, he, but he just dies that year, natural causes. So you see, Muawiyah says these are the main potentials of, of Quraysh. Make sure you get them to give you bay'ah. Because this matter will really just stay in Quraysh now. And really, Quraysh to them is just Bani Umayyah. And, and then later on, you've got, this is all politics. I mean, it's very fascinating, don't get me wrong. I, I, I do enjoy, I, I just think sometimes you shouldn't get too emotional over these things. They've happened. You know, it's okay to learn. It's, it, you can get sentimental whilst reading it, but, you know, it's not a need for sectarianism or for kind of now go and cuss and insult this person who's been long dead, you know, like, just to make myself feel better. I think that kind of stuff is not so. Yeah, yeah, let's take some online questions. Okay, the fire not burning Ibrahim salam. Look, see, there's two things I want to say before answering that. I was asked recently about a question as well, and I answered same thing. I've got on YouTube a clip where I speak about, it's titled to do with the Queen of Sheba, uh, but its greater title is how to approach stories in the Qur'an. Like, how do we approach them? You know, stories in the Qur'an, you've got two options. Option one. We just see them as a story, as an example, as a story, that's it. Like, it doesn't matter if they were real or not. It's a story, it's got a moral, and so long as that, they've got what we call narratorial truths, like metaphorical truths. This is option one. In this case, nothing matters what the story is saying, because it's just a story. People could be flying, they could be time traveling, they could be doing anything, they could be rising from the dead, doing this, they could be, you know, whatever, it's just a story. Option two is, no, they were factual, real events. The problem with this lens is if we're going to say they're real, real events, we've got to now make sure they are real. Like, they've got to add up. So, I personally do go with that they are real, generally speaking. I feel that maybe one or two things may be stories in the Quran, but generally, I feel that these things are real. Now. Therefore, we've got to then analyze the whole structure, what's being mentioned. The Qur'an does not generally, I know Surah Yusuf has a lot of detail about, about Yusuf but most surahs just mention snippets. They're not like a chronological narrative, like the Prophet saying, oh sorry, like Allah is saying, oh and one day, you know, Ibrahim was born, this is the year. A bit like the Bible, you know, if you look at the Bible, the Old Testament, it gives like places, this person was born here, he was the son of this, he was the son of this, he was the son of this, and he did this, and he did this. They go, it goes into so much detail. And one day he was at this, and went across this person, did this. The Quran's not like that, it just mentions snippets. Like there'll just be a, oh, and do you not recall when this happened, or have they not heard of when the, and he'll just mention in two, three verses, and that's it. Moved on, new story now. So, the issue with this, not an issue, but the challenge here is a lot of information is missing. Because Allah is not trying to give you a biographical, uh, you know, like a book on a thing. He's just trying to tell you a lesson from an event. So, we have to look at these things carefully. Some people look at these things and they take it like, they kind of try to combine the two. So, they want to treat it like just a fantasy story, but they want to say it's real. The problem with that is then it doesn't add up to the real world. 
if you start saying things like people flying and people doing this and people doing that, but you wouldn't believe that if somebody else said it. Like, so it doesn't add up. Like, if I, if I said to you, oh, look, here's a book, and said, and this person got out of his house and he flew from Birmingham, he just ran and just started flying, and then he landed in Manchester, and then he just time traveled back to 1924, and then he just moved forward to 2056. And then, it, like, you'd accept it as a story, but you wouldn't accept it. Why is it, no, no, trust me, this time it just happened? It doesn't normally happen, but it happened this time. So you wouldn't accept these things. So if we look at the Quran, it doesn't actually mention, generally speaking, anything that's so contradictory. The problem is we're filling in the gaps. So if you take the example of Ibrahim Salam's fire story, nowhere does it actually mention he was thrown in the fire. But you see, we fill the dots in. It's a bit like that, it's the blind spot. The brain just fills it in. So you've got now, like Allah says in the Quran, they prepared a fire that was, you know, they said, let's prepare this really big fire for him or something to burn him. Now, then Allah does mention, we said to the fire, be cool. But it doesn't mention that they, anywhere that they threw him in. It does mention that Allah says, we saved him from the fire. Now, true, he was saved from the fire. Now, there's different ways of understanding that. One way is he was thrown in the fire and he got saved. Another way is he got saved from it. Like Allah mentions, we saved Noah from the flood. It didn't mean he threw him in the flood first, had him almost drown, and then pulled him out and saved him. Like, it doesn't mean like, the, the whole point is when you save somebody from something, it means you saved him. <laughs> it doesn't mean I got to, I saved you from getting shot, means I doesn't, you have to first get shot and then I save you from it. <laughs> right? That's one way of saving. <laughs> the other way. I mean, <laughs> since it's God, it can be done before. So the point is, now, in this sense, what I've said is that if you look at the verses, if the fire was huge and he was most likely tied up whilst they're making this fire, probably tormenting him, right, it's very likely that the heat and the smoke would damage you still, even if you're not in it yet, but you're close to it. So Allah said, He says, we said to the fire, be cool and, and not cause harm. Now, how did He say this? Did He like, so some people would say, we just said, like Allah just said. Or were there means involved, like in the other verse, Allah says, we said to the skies, let down rain. But we know that, we know that obviously rain is like, obviously in the clouds, it's not like in the sky. It doesn't work like that. It works. But we understand this is how language works. You know, Allah's not trying to give you a scientific breakdown of how it happened. He's just trying to tell you a quick un a snapshot. And it's in that language that we sent down rain from the heavens above. Obviously, rain doesn't actually come from the heavens, it comes from the clouds. But the point is, that's the language. So, here when Allah addresses, like, and we said to the sky, like with Surah, uh, uh, not Surah, sorry, to do with Nuh salam, We said to the sky, like, stop the rain with the flood, and we said to the earth, swallow, you know, the water. But it wasn't like, there's obviously mechanisms doing it. It wasn't like, like obviously the soil would absorb, uh, you know, it would, it would absorb the thing. It, it's not just like it's doing it without any mechanism. So when Allah's saying, be, don't harm him, is it just he's saying it, or was there, for example, a mechanism like wind that kept him safe? There's no harm in, Allah doesn't have to mention every detail. Yeah. The other thing is that if he was thrown in the fire and then pulled out, 
Why didn't the people around him believe? Because Ibrahim is only a young man at this stage. He's still a, he lives a long life yet after that. So why didn't they just, like think about it, if a guy got thrown in a fire, it's a really big fire and it's burned, everybody like, whoa, but he's just like, <laughs> and then he walks out the fire, everybody would be like, that's definitely a man of God. We're not worthy, we're not worthy. Yet they don't, and wouldn't they then at least think, okay, the fire didn't kill him, at least let's try stabbing him. <laughs> See if that don't work. They, so there's, there's no news of them trying to kill him, and neither do they believe in him. So it's more likely that he got saved somehow from the actual fire from going ahead. That's what seems more likely. However, the Quran didn't want us to get fixed on the detail. It was just trying to show a message that Allah is there as a source of help. That's, I think, the important thing. Look, uh, for gonna be, look, the Shia slate us Sunnis over this point. And to be fair, we know that they've got a point. Like, if we're going to be honest, they have got a point. Like, they, they say, come on, you know as well, the Sahaba were just normal human beings. And we do know that. And their point is that why do you treat them as though they're infallible? And in all honesty, they weren't infallible. Um, and we know that because even in our hadith, it mentions there were companions who would drink alcohol, there were companions who were doing things that would get in trouble, who would commit crime. There were people, I mean, and then this whole understanding of what do we call a companion is a more interesting thing as well. Because it's really, a lot of it seems to be made up later on. In all honesty, I don't think the Prophet, uh, right? So I don't think the Prophet himself would have considered all those people his companions. Off, start, take care. Right, so, I don't, like, in the Prophet's lifetime, who would have he considered to be his companion? He would have just, he would have considered most likely those people who were often around him. And they would, hence you have the hadith where a companion is asked, um, that, you know, are there any companions alive today? And he says that, as to people who met the Prophet, he says, maybe there's some. But he says, as to his companions, no, they, they've all died. So, I accept that this, under, using this term like Sahaba, who are the Sahaba, everybody who met the Prophet, is really an institutionalized version. I accept that, if we're going to be honest. You know, just being honest. And I don't really believe, personally, they are all Sahaba. I just believe that the Sahaba were his true companions, people who were actually with him. Not just like people who knew him like that. And, you know, I gave the example like saying once, like, oh, imagine it's like, uh, like in this day and age. And I gave Facebook as an example. I said like, oh, like, let's say I do things on Facebook and I've got Facebook friends. <laughs> so what, like 5,000 whatever friends maxed out. Now, in all honesty, I don't think I hardly, with maybe exception of a few, know any of them probably, like on a genuine level. Maybe those who ask me questions a lot and I kind of interact with them. But otherwise, let's say if somebody said about me in years to come, oh, who were his friends? And somebody said, yeah, he was his friend because he was his Facebook friend. That doesn't really make that your friend in that sense. Friend would have been people that you generally hung around with. You were So, yeah, so I accept that. And, and the criticism part I accept as well. 
that if, in all honesty, you could criticize, I've answered this before in much detail, um, saying that how should we approach criticism of the companions. And I've said there's two hallways, two kind of paths. One is where you, we don't criticize anybody, we just venerate them, and we just treat them with respect, and we just leave it. And I encourage that. That's what I preach, that's what I advise. Um, I accept it's not objectively accurate. I accept that it's not, it is institutionalized. But I think it works for the better. Because we do kind of then treat them as like superhero, like the halo effect, everybody's kind of semi-perfect. But that works. The other thing is we, the other path is one of criticism, where we can be critical. We don't have to be evil, but we can be critical. The issue with this is it's a very, like I mentioned, it's a very dark, scary, lonely path with, you know, with that Halloween music going on in the background, you know, Michael Myers. <laughs> He's standing behind a tree, you got that Halloween music going on. It's one of those paths. If you go down this, the problem is that the Sahaba were human or too human. And then you're going to get into stories, you're going to get into narrations. Narrations are dictated by always people who are partisan to something. So you might read something from somebody who favoured this person over that person, therefore he's writing all these horrible things about that person, now you're going to read about this person over that person. And, and you start reading all of these things. And like what does what does it achieve in the end so and then that what the, so i do agree that these people could be criticized like as in i don't mean criticized as in taking just like pointing faults with them but i mean being critical critiquing as opposed to criticizing i suppose but critiquing them but then i disagree with the shia in the sense that they say you can critique the sahaba didn't they critique each other which they're right they did but then they say you can critique the Sahaba except Ali. And you think, well, well why can't you critique Sayyidina Ali then? Because if we're going to critique them, then we should critique them all. Like, what, what's the, like if you're going to go down that road, then it should, it, the whole point of it is being uber objective. What's the point of getting there and saying, oh, we're going to rip everybody to shreds? But Sayyidina Ali is masum. You think, well, uh, I doubt that. And so, and then this is why last time I said, well, you know, a few years back, some of these things and people got really offended online. I said, oh my God, he's critiquing Sayyidina Ali. I wasn't critiquing Sayyidina Ali, but I was just trying to make a point. So that's, that's why I advise not going down that path. This one, first path, yeah. Yeah. They go, you look around, Hariyali, Hariyali, <laughs> spring, nice music, Bollywood tune in the background, everybody's happy, everybody's on mushrooms. <laughs> you know, this is beautiful, this is a beautiful part, this one. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's why I, I, that's why I say just go with this veneration and no point critiquing them because it just gets messy, it gets horrible, um, and there's very little to come out of it except just arguments and sectarianism and... Fah! 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 I'm telling 
Sajiji, it takes a genius to know a genius. Anoke, unique people. Where, when, where, how are they born? Where are they born? Afsos Tumko Mir says, See, had have you met the likes of Mir, you would have known. But yeah, different. Why am I different? Well, you, you seem to be different from most others. You seem to stand out a bit. You think. Mm -hmm. That's a broad question. Huh? It's not just the views. Views. I think I, I don't belong to a sect which allows me to, I suppose in the broad sense, I'm Sunni, but if, if that's what you want to say, is I don't consider that a sect, I just consider that orthodox Islam, mainstream Islam, whatever you want to call orthodoxy, it is the mainstream, the bulk of Muslims are Sunni in the world, I, you know, unanimously, whether you want to say 75%, 70%, 80%, whatever, are Sunni with their disagreements, and I cast everybody in that. Salafi, Sufi, Ash'ari, Maturidi, Hanbali, Athari, whatever, Zahiri, you know, whatever they are, within the Sunni thing, I consider them all to be part of the Sunni, although I disagree with, you know, things, but, so, but because I don't belong to a sect, I think it allows me <coughs> to speak freely, to think about things freely. You see, for me, the argument has to just make sense to me. I don't have to worry about pleasing my group, or my cult, or my pirsab, or my sheikh, or my, you know, my whole sect. I don't have to worry about pleasing them. Uh, they don't exist. So my point is, whereas if I was part of a particular sect, it would be, like if I was, let's say, uh, a Diobandi, or, or a Salafi, or in that sense, Salafis are a bit, slightly freer than maybe like Diobandis. Um, because they have some freedom to their approach, but they can't still go against their mashaykh in general. Uh, the these are unfortunately held to, to, to kind of ransom, really, to the whole, held captive to the whole akabir, akabirin, you know, of the Diyoband thing. And this isn't a criticism of the Diyoband, but this is just me being honest. You know, I love honesty. Honesty. <laughs> That's what I told the judge. <laughs> I love honesty. <laughs> so the thing is that Brailvies as well, the, but although Brailvies in some way are less stru structured than the Diobandi, so there's a bit more kind of scattered approach to them, so they've got a bit of differences amongst them, but even then they've got broader kind of structures that they can't go against. Like they can't, so if you followed a particular their pisab, they couldn't be going against their kind of pisab, or let's say somebody follows, I don't know, a particular big sheikh, like, and some amongst them, don't get me wrong, were a bit open-minded, Bir Karam Shah Saab and people like that were quite open-minded, uh, but others are sometimes not that open-minded. So the point is, if you follow a particular sect, you're stuck. You know, you can't do anything. Like people, they, they hero worship, the, they don't just hero worship, they super, like can you imagine trying to go against that, you'd get boycotted, and if that's your world, like imagine I'm, uh, I don't know, like a Diobandi, I only belong to a particular Diobandi masjid, and that's the only masjids I go to, they're the only people I interact with, or let's say I'm a, I don't know, I'm a, uh, a Sufi with, you could, what's a popular tariqa? Qadri. Qadri. No, I mean an actual with a scholar. 
Like, let's Tijani. say, I'm, but Tijanis, I think, are a bit, they're not really too fussed about things, they? But it could be Tijani, or let's say, like, Sheikh Yaqubi is, is popular, like, he's got a lot of murids. Or you've got, like, these, whoever it is, you've got people now, they are your circles. They are your masjids, they are your friends. If you oppose that voice, you'd just become, you'd be orphanized. Like, you would, you'd have nowhere, yatim. <laughs> you'd have nowhere to go. Your livelihood would be cut off if you're a teacher. This is why I say be free people. Allah. Be like the birds. Huh? Why are they preaching that fear Allah, you will die, and, and they don't implement that advice in themselves? They cry as if they feel love, but they contradict what they said. Oh, could you do a tea or something? You know what? Ibi reminded me of a poem. That itna ehsas apna, itna ehsas apna to nahi hai mujko. That even I don't know about my own situation that much. But oron se suna hai ke pareshan hum. But other people tell me that I'm, I'm distressed. <laughs> so, cha vakia. Inshallah,inshallah,Amin。Okay,yeah,we'll,shall我们take some。Tawassul和istighfar。Oof,oof。Huh?Yeah,yeah,Pirani,who should I call out to to help me?I mean,what is the purpose of all of this stuff?You know
in Hinduism, but not Russian is a, I'm not saying Russian is, but in Hinduism, many people don't know that Hindus actually just worship one God. Many people don't know that. Whether it's, they call him Ishwar or Brahma, the great Atma, Paramatma, you know, it's, it's just one. Paramatma isn't like so many different gods. It's the great Atma that resides in all of us. Isn't this what Hinduism actually is? Ram, you know, Krishna, these people, you know, Ganesh, all these, Hanuman, these people are just manifestations that they use as, you know, that that they use them to get closer to God. Like, because here they've got a visual, I can focus on it. I can use this one to, this is a personal God. This God is the one of fortune. You know, whether it's going to be uh, one of the Devis or Lakshmi for fortune or whether it's going to be Hanuman for strength or, or whatever problems. and So they've got different gods for that they can personalize and relate to. The situation isn't different in the monotheistic faiths either. Like if you take Christianity, you will have patron saints. Saint George, Saint, you know, you'll have different, like all countries will have their own saint. Um, but they, they will have particular saints, Saint Andrew, these saints that save them. There's a particular saint for journeys. You'll see certain Christians carrying his cross. Uh, it protects them. There's certain... Uh, you, you, it's not that they don't believe in Jesus. They've already got Jesus. But still, they need something closer still. And Muslims are just human beings as well. You know, these things are difficult to escape. I think human beings will always struggle to truly escape to a pure Tawheed. Because it's... They find it too distant, like God is too removed to, to answer me. Hence in Hinduism, nobody really prays to Brahma. Why do they not pray to Brahma? Think about it, he's the ultimate God, but why do they not? Because they say he's too transcendent. They're not worthy. No, not that he's not worthy, but he, why would he be interested no, in me? They're not worthy. Oh yeah, they themselves are not worthy, exactly. Like, why would the ultimate God care about me? I need this thing here. Because he can see me and he can... So this is, I'm not saying it's a rational thing, but it's a, it's, this is their reasoning. And at a lower level, that's what Muslims are just humans as well. Like, what, I know Allah, but I need to ask Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani in Baghdad to kind of give it to me. Or this Pir Saab in, you know, Lahore or this Pir Saab, wherever, you know, to, to kind of give me this because he's closer to me. So it's that same thing. <laughs> it'll come to me. You see, the problem I have is that I feel that many people in Islam, the image we've presented of God is a very scary image. I don't personally like that image, but each to their own. Some people like it. I feel that God is a merciful God and it's a, you know, he's, he's a compassionate God and that's the side that I see of God. But we have this thing that it's a very he's a scary, he's a, he's a vengeful, he's an angry God. 
you know, he wants to punish you if you get, you know, if you get something wrong. If we have this impression that, you know, if, if it was a human, you know, this guy would understand why I made the mistake, but it's God. How the hell is he going to understand? He's just going to whoop me for it. Like, this is the kind of understanding we have of God. So I find that problematic. I feel that it clashes. Yeah, I think these things are just if sahih, if sahih. I think these were just like allegorical truths. Like, you know, the Prophet is just trying to show if they be true. The hadith is just trying to demonstrate that it's a scary day. That's all. That it's not like, you know, it's not that these things, like meaning that it's, this is the, what the hadith is just trying to demonstrate in essence. The, the kind of essence of it is that it's a very difficult day where you have to worry about yourself so what's the lesson from that so take care of yourself now like do the good that you need like don't rely on others that's the whole point and but, but at the same time that hadith is demonstrating the prophet is a source of hope for people guys we'll continue with the um, Q&A well, uh, informal Q&A informal. afterwards so wrap this up people those of you online I hope you understood much of that. If you didn't, don't worry about it, man. They say half of it I wasn't really fully sober anyway. <laughs> Guys, take very good care, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh.